Mormon begins the tale of the Jaredites, an ancient people following an even more ancient path across the water to the promised land. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me again for Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. Today's lesson, Ether, chapter 1 through 5, Rend That Veil of Unbelief. have a question, or I guess an answer to a question, this week from Lee. Lee says, my guess, well, this is a response to my question from last time, asking if Mormon, who wrote the Book of Mormon, is like Captain Moroni, then who is his son Moroni like elsewhere in the Book of Mormon? And uh, so Lee is answering this question. He says, My guess is that Moroni is most like Nephi. Both felt cast off. Nephi from Jerusalem. Both had to flee from the Lamanites to avoid being killed. Both cited their weakness in making the record. Nephi's records were also buried for a time and rediscovered by Mormon. Nephi also seems to have had multiple conclusions after 2 Nephi chapter 30, then again after chapter 33. And as we'll discover, Mormon, or, I'm sorry, Moroni has uh, several conclusions, one of which we've already read, and two more we're going to read. Moroni even seems to quote frequently from Nephi, as he does several times in Moroni chapter 9, and Lee gives several examples. Lee, you're absolutely right. You give plenty of evidence to support your idea, and so I can't argue with a thing you've said. My own interpretation was that Moroni is most similar, and I, I see there are plenty of answers to this question. There's no one right answer. My own interpretation is that Moroni is most similar to the prophet Ether. Now think about this for a minute. They're both prophets. They're both historians. So they're both looking back on uh, a long history of a civilization that has now been destroyed. In fact, both Moroni and Ether are, are the sole survivors of their respective civilizations. They're both a descendant of the first king. So one of the things we learn in the first chapter of the book of Ether is that Ether is a descendant of Jared. And one of the descendants, uh, I'm sorry, one of the sons of Jared was the first king. So uh, they have royal blood. And as Moroni says, that he was a, uh, he was the son of Mormon who was a descendant of Nephi. So interesting that they're both, uh, they're both the descendants in that way after hundreds of years. Uh, they're both abridgers of the records of their people. So we can assume that these 24 plates that the Nephites earlier came across were uh, a distillation somehow of many records that had been kept by the Jaredite people and had been put together by Ether. In fact, we, uh, we learned that at the end of the book of Ether. So they're both abridgers of a, lot of a lot of records and they're sealers up of those records. So we have a record of Ether hiding the record. We don't know exactly how he did it. He must have had some sort of uh, inspiration that if he put it in a certain place, and he, and he did, close to the battlefield where his people died, then the Nephites would later find it. And that's exactly what he did. And I have no doubt that Limhi's group that he sent to find Zarahemla, they were led to that record. Even though they couldn't find Zarahemla, they were led to those 24 plates. So we're going to talk, before we begin uh, discussing the actual substance of the book of Ether, we're going to talk a little bit about what it looks like from the outside. Uh, so what is the book of Ether, this Jaredite record? This has a, the the book of Ether actually has a very very complicated history. First of all, like I said, uh, we have these twenty four plates and Limhi, one of the separatist kings from the you you remember there was a group of, I guess you'd call them explorers who went off to uh, resettle the original land of the Nephites, and they had three generations of kings separated from Zarahemla, and because they did that. Uh, and they, they were trying to find their way back. Limhi sent off this group. They found, instead of finding Zarahemla, they found the records, brought them back. But they weren't able to find their way home. And it was only later that they brought the records back. And Mosiah, because he had access to interpreters, as they were called, uh, was able to trans translate these 24 plates that were prepared by Ether. And God describes these plates or the record that the brother of Jared will keep. Uh, in the chapters of today's lesson, he says, because I have 
confused your language, confounded your tongue, that no one else will understand it, then the record you will write will be automatically sealed up. And it is only through these interpreters that I will give you that these things can be brought to light in some future day. Now, once Mosiah makes this translation, then there's some sort of abridgment right away that happens or transcription because that record is sent out among the people. But one of the things we learn in chapter 4 is that uh, the brother of Jared, when he comes down from the mountain, he I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but you'll remember that uh, he comes down from the mountain, has a great vision, and he immediately writes everything that happens. But one of the comments that Moroni makes is that those things were not to come forth until after Jesus Christ has lived in the flesh. And so Mosiah must have made a decision. I'm going to take this particular part of these writings, these 24 plates, and I'm not going to share them with the people of Nephi. But otherwise, we read in the book of Mosiah that among the many things that caused the Nephites to sorrow when they were rejoined with Limhi's people were the records. I mean, they obviously, they sorrowed over what happened to the wicked King Noah and all the wickedness that he caused to happen. But also, another thing that caused them to sorrow was this record of the destruction of an entire people whose bones they had seen scattered across the earth. And so the the this grand vision so we know that they this record was distributed at the time and it had to be have been done in some sort of print they couldn't have made this many copies of the plates uh, whether they wrote wrote it out by hand that's really the only way I can think of that they would have done it but enough people heard every the the word from these 24 plates went abroad among the people and so it must have been copied by hand and sent abroad. So there was a transcription made. And in that transcription, this part, this grand vision of the prophet, the brother of Jared, was left out. Later on, we also learn that Alma was telling his son Helaman, here are these records, I'm going to pass them down to you. And it, among them are these 24 plates. But my son Helaman, Alma said, don't pass along an account of the evil secret combinations that the Jaredites got themselves into. So pass along the things that you've received, but obviously you can't pass on uh, the things that were not shared, the, this account of this grand vision. And also, you can't pass along the, the account of the evil things they got into. We don't want the other Nephites to have the details because they'll just copy it and it will prove the destruction of this people. So we have two evidences or two examples already in the Book of Mormon from earlier about things that were taken out of these 24 plates, and perhaps there were more. So we've, we've got uh, Mosiah's translation from the, well, first of all, we've got Ether's uh, abridgment, then we've got Mosiah's translation from those 24 plates, then we've got some sort of abridgment again, or at least a redaction. And then Moroni goes through the 24 plates and he reduces it down to what we have today, which is 15 chapters of the book of Ether. And most of that, well, not most of that, a, a fair amount of that, a significant portion of that is Moroni's commentary. So he'll stop the story at certain points and he'll say, and or he doesn't always say this is I, Moroni, talking, but he'll say things like, now we can see the lesson we learned from this is, or, oh, ye Gentiles, will you longer dispute that God is king over all? Things like that. He makes these comments that we can tell are Moroni talking. So, Moroni makes an abridgment, and then he makes a commentary. And finally, now in the latter day, we have Joseph Smith's translation of all of this, of Moroni's abridgment and Moroni's words. So, this is a very complicated record. It has a complicated history. Uh, and to further complicate it, if we look at the source of it, these 24 plates, where did they come from? So, as we'll learn in the, in the book of Ether, the, the Jaredite people... They have a history that is founded in the ancient Near East, like the Hebrews, like the people of the Old Testament. And so what was included in their record? Well, one of the things that they had with them, Moroni says early on, I would assume that the people who are going to receive my record, they already know about Adam. They already know about all the prophets that lead up until the time where the great tower was created. So all the patriarchs between Adam and Noah and the account of the flood, I'm going to leave all that out because I'm assuming you already have it. And so that's, that's uh, Moroni telling us that the book of Ether contained these things. So what the Jaredites had was a book of scripture. They had some sort of record that contained all of that. And therefore, much like the Nephites, they left the old world 
with some scripture to carry with them that contained the words of God and the teachings of the prophets up until their time. It probably, based on the fact that the book of uh, Ether begins with a genealogy, then we can assume that that was part of their culture. And therefore, they probably brought with them their genealogy as well, some records about where they came from. Now, there is some evidence uh, in the book of Ether that there were laws, there were codes of conduct, and, for example, that murder was wrong. Now, that may seem like an obvious thing to you and me, but to be specific, if we go back in history, there are plenty of civilizations where laws didn't exist, where people ran rampant, where might makes right, etc. And really, if you want to trace the history of this, at least the the spiritual history of this idea, it goes back to something called the Noahide Covenant. And before the covenant of Abraham, before the covenant of Moses, before the Ten Commandments, Noah was given a, a code of conduct that includes seven commandments. And five of them are repeated in the Ten Commandments later on, things like do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not... Okay, so those are... And do not take the Lord's name in vain, etc., or do not blaspheme, etc., so those were the, that was the Noahide uh, covenant, and it was intended for all the peoples of the earth, not just because Noah, Noah's descendants really were going to be everyone, really. It was not just a particular people, as were the Ten Commandments were just for the Hebrews, right? So the Noahide covenant included as its first law that you should make laws. In other words, that you should establish some sort of justice and the Jaredites brought this idea with them. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is we can kind of see underpinnings of ideas from the Noahide covenant throughout the book of Jared. And that's one interesting thing that you wouldn't expect to see. Uh, if you would expect to see either something more concrete or you would expect to see something less indicative of ancient origins. If Joseph Smith were making up the Book of Mormon, he, he would likely either have them be a more moral people because he wouldn't be able to distinguish in his uneducated mind. He wouldn't be able to say now uh, these people who were probably a thousand years older than the time or almost a thousand years before the time of Moses. They would have had a different set of cultural values and therefore I'm going to create a whole new ethos for them. Uh, you wouldn't expect Joseph Smith to be able to do that. And so you would expect him to either model their morality, their civilization, after that of the Hebrews from the Old Testament, uh, that fill up a lot more of the Old Testament, or you would expect him to have them be totally amoral. And in, in any rate, that's my, uh, that's my interpretation of, of how I would read it, is it seems like Joseph Smith gets an awful lot of things. For somebody who's making up an ancient record, he gets an awful lot of things exactly how they should be. And this is one of those unlikely scenarios where for him to have uh, correctly guessed how an ancient people would incorporate the Noahide covenant into their teachings and into their cultures seems to defy logic and, and uh, really stretch credulity and how likely that would be. Uh, so they brought with them a creation record. They brought with them the Noahide covenant. The Jaredites also, they brought with them, like very likely, an oral history. They brought with them the patriarchal history, the, the history of the prophets, as I mentioned, between Adam and Noah, and perhaps even from Noah to their present time, which um, we can separate. If, if you go back into the Bible, and I never like to do math based on the numbers in the Bible because that is not the purpose of the Bible. There are actually several problems linguistically and culturally with large numbers in the Bible. And I've gone through it in earlier lessons. I can't remember right now exactly which ones. I think it was when we talked about the Exodus and how uh, the, the Hebrews were numbered at 600,000 families or men including, and then not including women and children. And so I talked a little bit about what the numbers might mean and how they're not exactly meant to convey exactness the way we would use those numbers today. In any case, the chronology of the book of the early book of Genesis is often done with these years that are described about the prophets and the patriarchs. Adam lived X number of years and begat Seth, and then Seth lived X number of years, begat Enos, etc. And, and then Adam lived after that so, however many years, and then he died. 
So using these numbers, uh, biblical scholars have constructed complicated chronologies. It's not, I, I guess it's not that complicated to make, it's just addition. However, we get into a little bit of problem, <laughs> number one, because uh, by doing math based on the numbers in the Bible, because the numbers don't really add up to anything that we read in the archaeological record, and certainly not the fossil record for the creation of the world. So that's one problem with doing math based on the numbers in the Bible. Number two is the fact that the way the ancient Hebrews saw those numbers was not the way that we see them today. Like I said, they didn't always convey numbers with exactness as we would expect. And this didn't mean that they were lying or that the record is false. It actually it would tend to authenticate the record because that's actually what those numbers were intended for. The numbers were intended to tell the story of their people and make their people kind of the star of the show. All of that said, if we do some sort of loose calculation, we don't depend on it exactly, we can kind of estimate that the time of the Tower of Babel was between maybe 50 and 250 years after the flood. So in any anywhere in that range of time, the Tower of Babel would have been created. And it's it's the the legend is that Nimrod, the mighty hunter, was the grandson of Noah, and he was the leader of the people who who he inspired to come make this tower with him. So the Tower of Babel is sort of the beginning of the record of the Jaredite people. The, the ancient Mesopotamians, this is where this occurred, because if, if, unless you, uh, in case you are not aware of this, Babel and or Babel is the root word of Babylon. So the Tower of Babel is, is where the, the nation of Babylon began and where the civilization begins to grow that later becomes a very prominent empire, not only in uh, biblical history, but in world history. So this is the beginning of, beginnings of Babylon, which occurred in Mesopotamia, which is this fertile crescent in the, in the ancient Near East between the Tigris and Euphrates River. It spans the area between Iraq and Iran. So it's sort of Persian, half Arab, and it, it is a very, very complicated, hotly contested part of the world. And so it's always been rife with conflict. And so it has a very rich history going back thousands of years. So that's the birthplace of the Jaredite people is in this city called Babel, led by a man named Nimrod. And he says, uh, let's build a tower here and the Nimrod is not named in the Jaredite record but in the Bible and in the legends let's build a tower here so that we can reach the heavens now in Josephus who was an ancient Hebrew historian uh, just after the time of Christ he wrote that Nimrod had done this because he wanted to build something tall enough that if there were ever another flood sent they'd be able to ride out the weather and not die not drown they could just climb into the upper floors of this tower and be safe. And that sort of sheds new light on the story of the Tower of Babel because what we then see is that it was constructed. What was the purpose of the flood, if not justice upon the earth? It was to punish man for their sins, right? So the purpose of building a huge tower is not to reach heaven and perhaps challenge God for mastery, as many people suppose. But it's simply to rise above the earth where the, where the floods came and be able to ride out a future storm, another flood. So Nimrod had two problems. Number one, he didn't trust God's covenant that he had made in the rainbow when God gave a covenant to Noah and said, I will never again send the floods upon the earth. They didn't trust that covenant, so they didn't trust God. And number two, they wanted to be above God's justice. Nimrod was initiating the building of this tower to escape the justice of God. He wanted the ability to ignore God. So we're going to remember that because uh, how, how much attention people pay to God is basically the, the main idea of the first six chapters of the book of Ether. It's really what it's about is paying attention to God is super important. And we learn that from the behavior of Jared and the brother of Jared. It's repeated over and over again. But we're actually still talking about what the Jaredites brought with them. What went into these 24 plates? So I've already mentioned the creation record and oral history, the Noahide covenant, the patriarchal history, and then the writings from who knows how many Jaredite uh, prophets, right? 
The brother of Jared was the first of them, and we know we have his writings because chapter 4 of the book of Ether describes the brother of Jared coming down from the mountaintop where he saw the finger of God and writing down this tremendous vision he'd sat, had of all things, even until the end of the world. So that was the the status of what the brother of Jared, uh, the status of his vision, the status of his writings. So these are among the things that are going into the 24 plates. And then finally, uh, the prophets that are between him, obviously the brother of Jared didn't live until the time of Ether, and Ether wasn't around uh, that long. If you consider that his people were there for 1,500 years or, or more in the New World, there had to be several contributors for a for a record of that size. And like I said, unless either Ether has abridged this record or he simply compiled the record into these 24 plates. We don't know which. So that is what goes into the 24 plates that fed into the other uh, Mosiah's translation and then the transcription that happened at that time. More Moroni's abridgment, Moroni's commentary, finally Joseph Smith's translation. Now, I've explained how complicated the record is that gives us the modern book of Ether. But I think I should say, I feel like I should mention at this point, that as complicated as it is, it's no more complicated than any of the books of the Bible. We, don't, uh, we know a lot more, in fact, about the provenance of the book of Ether than we do about many, if not all, of the books of the Old Testament and certainly most of the books of the New Testament. We don't have uh, a chain of custody of manuscripts of the New Testament. There are literally thousands of manuscripts, source manuscripts of the New Testament. And for the Old Testament, it's less complicated, but more shrouded in mystery because we have very few extant uh, records that, that that contain the entire record that is the Old Testament. And what that means is that the ones that survived to this point, if they've been changed or if they're missing information, we have a lot fewer sources that, against which we can compare them. So this is the part of the difficulty of ancient records is that uh, exemplars of those records get lost. And therefore, uh, over time, over thousands of years, as, as is the case with the Old Testament, we know less and less about where it came from, who wrote it. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, and while we're talking about the Old Testament, I think I should mention Moroni and Ether, when they created the Book of Mormon, when they abridged these holy records, they actually were falling into a tradition that was Moroni and Ether, when they abridged their respective records and created scripture. Uh, from the history of their people, they were actually taking part in a tradition that had existed before them, even though they may not have been aware of it. And uh, to give you specific examples, we look at the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament. Now, the, the traditional author of the book of Kings is the prophet Jeremiah. And just like Moroni and Ether, he was a prophet who lived to see the destruction of his people and felt like he had to make a record of their kings and their prophecies. And uh, the traditional author of the book of Chronicles, which also starts with the creation of Adam. Adam is the first word in the book of Chronicles, uh, was the prophet Ezra. Now, modern scholars would say neither of these men actually wrote the books that are ascribed to them. So I don't want to go into the historical case of whether the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Ezra actually wrote the books of Kings or Chronicles. What I'm saying is that this was a tradition that was well understood and they're taking part in. And basically the prophet historian, the prophet abridger, uh, the prophet creator of a historical sacred record of their people, of the people of God and of their uh, revelations as well as their wars and conflicts. was It's a very old pattern that they're fitting into, a very well understood one. So Moroni would have received this record, the book of Jared, he would have received it as a a cautionary tale for his people. His people had had, keep in mind, his people had had this record maybe between 400 and 500 years. And so he would have seen it as this warning uh, that his people failed to heed and therefore they suffered the consequences that were foretold in that warning. 
What is the warning of the book of Ether? Well, the book of Ether tells the story of a great people who are led to a promised land and then destroyed because of wickedness. And Moroni is witnessing these same events around him. So we can see, we can understand why he chose. He probably had many other records he could have chosen to include at the end of his father's record. And he chose the book of Ether. He, and perhaps that was a request from Mormon, right? Moroni presumably at some point uh, said goodbye to his father. Whether his father was killed in battle, and I believe he says that my father was killed by the Lamanites. So we didn't know whether it was in battle or whether they hunted him down. But let's imagine they had a final scene together where, final conversation where Mormon says, look, the last thing you should include should be some sort of abridgment of those 24 plates. Aren't they powerful? Don't they accurately predict what has come upon us? So I think that's what you should spend the rest of your life doing. You've got some time, Moroni. You can survive. So go out there and find those 24 plates and abridge them. Now, it may be that Moroni worked directly from the plates. The suggestion we have from Ether chapter 5 verse 1 is that he uh, memorized the book of Ether, which would be quite amazing by today's standards, but not at all remarkable for a learned scriptorian, uh, educated man of the ancient world. In fact, uh, that was exactly how they carried their scriptures around with them, was to memorize them. So in Ether chapter 5 verse 1, Moroni says, I'm writing this record according to my memory. So that's just an interesting tidbit. He may have actually had the entire book of Ether, and as we'll discuss, many more parts that are not part of the modern book of Ether. He might have had them memorized. So to return briefly to the timeline of the book of Ether, the beginning, having as it does its origin in the story of the Tower of Babel, marks it as one of the oldest stories that remains in writing. Now, the oldest story, the oldest narrative that we have in any sort of writing is, is a, an ancient tale that's called the Epic of Gilgamesh, and it survives, as, do, as does the Book of Mormon, as an engraving. It's actually survived on 12 tablets, and the Book of Mormon, as we know, is engraved on metal plates. Uh, the old, only older writings than the Epic of Gilgamesh are not narrative in nature. They're funerary texts. They're called pyramid texts. They're uh, ancient hieroglyphics carved on uh, inside pyramids, inside the uh, pyramids of Saqqara in Egypt. So those are the most ancient writings. And it, it turns out, if you do the math, that the Tower of Babel might be about that age as well. So the date of this story might begin as early as, let's say, 2300 BC. It might be as late as oh, 2050 or 2100 BC. So that's right around the time the Epic of Gilgamesh was written on the earlier end and right around the time the pyramid texts were written on the later end. The point is, this is a very old writing. And it fits the book, the uh, story of the Book of Ether, the, the Jaredite people. It actually fits an ancient pattern. And that ancient pattern is the pattern of the flood. So we all know the story of the flood. Noah is a prophet and he is called and God tells him, your people are going to be destroyed Here's how I want you to escape that destruction. I am going to instruct you in the building of a boat. You are going to cross the water and you're going to take supplies with you. You're going to provide for the survive, survival of your people, your family. And then from your family, I'm going to create a new nation. I'm going to lead you to a promised land. I'm going to direct you along your journey. And it's important that you remain righteous when you do this and when you arrive. So those Elements all sound very familiar when we're talking about the flood. But if you go back and listen to what I just said again, that those same elements apply exactly to the Exodus and also to the journey of Nephi and Lehi and their family out of the city of Jerusalem. And now we're finding that it applies equally well to the people, to the Jaredites. So this is a well-understood story, and it's all patterned after the flood. Now, in the case of the writer of the book of Exodus, this was done on purpose. Right? The, the people of God were leaving the, a wicked place. They had been told that it would be destroyed. They have to cross over the water to get to the promised land. Uh, they will be guided by God along the way, but if they grow wicked, then they'll be destroyed, etc., etc. So all of those elements are, are present in the story. And in the case of the way the, the elements of the, or the events of the Exodus are emphasized and the way that it's recounted, it's both 
deliberate on the part of the storyteller, and it was deliberate on the part of God to put them through similar events so that the story could be told as a retelling of the flood narrative. And that is the same reason that the book of Nephi has the organization that it does, is because it's meant to show this is the creation of a, of a people that is now the foundation of a nation later on. But the point I'm trying to get at with all of this is that in this pattern, the book of Ether fits into a well-understood genre, which is that of an epic. Now, an epic is a story in which a person is worked on, usually a person is worked on by, by the gods or by God, some supernatural being in order to go on a very harrowing journey, a, a journey of great danger in which uh, they, they or he gains great wisdom, which he then either brings home or he brings his people to. And this becomes a defining idea. Whatever the wisdom that he receives becomes a defining idea, so much so that it sets his people apart. It's the origin story of how we became who we are. Now, as I and that is the pattern that the Epic of Gilgamesh that I already mentioned, that's the pattern that it fits into. But epics from all over the world fit into this very pattern. And the reason I point that out uh, is not to say that the book of uh, Ether or the Jaredite tale is fictional, because epics don't have to be fictional. Think about the origin story of the modern American nation, the, the United States of America. You could certainly tell it according to that same epic style, right? You could give the story of a people who are separated from where they came from. They have to cross the water. God is involved in their journey, and they eventually gain wisdom and come to a realization that allows them to found a new people, right? You could tell that story with all of those elements, and it wouldn't be a fictional story. It's just an epic because it fits the pattern, and it provides an origin story for a new nation. And surprisingly enough, that's what uh, Exodus does. That's even what the flood narrative in Genesis chapter 9 does. That's what the book of Nephi does. And that is now what the early part of the book of Ether does. They all provide this epic narrative that describes the origins of a people. Now, I described what went into the 24 plates of Ether, uh, the, the, the fact that they had their scriptures, they had the creation story, they had their genealogy but they also have their personal exodus experience. They all lived this epic story that they went through. They have shipbuilding experience uh, and an experience of voyaging together. They, they brought with them the, not only Jared, who is their leader and his family, but the brother of Jared, who is their priest and his family. Now, there was no organized religion uh, after the time of Noah. We have no record of it whatsoever in the Bible. And therefore, we have no reason to suppose that it existed. So everything involving worship would have been done at the family level. It would have been either your father or some part of your extended family has someone who is consecrated, is given unto God. This is a pattern that is followed throughout the Bible. And when God tells Moses, you will consecrate your brother Aaron and all of his descendants to be priests unto your people forever, uh, we feel like, I think, if, unless we understood the history of the region, we feel like that was an innovation at the time. But what if God was falling, he was uh, showing Moses how to follow an ancient pattern with his people rather than introducing something new, something that would have been familiar and comfortable to the descendants of the Israelites who escaped uh, Egypt. I want you to have something familiar, which is that there will be people among you who are consecrated and set apart to be priests. You don't all of you have to be priests. It is the part of some people. Well, if that was an ancient pattern, and we, we believe that it was, ancient records would suggest that to be the case, then we have something very similar here. We have a leader, political leader, someone who has the power to give orders, who is Jared, who says to the brother, his brother, go say a prayer. Well, this sounds a little strange. It sounds like, well, why don't you say your own prayer, Jared? You know, are you so separated from God that you can't pray? But if you look at it in the context of an ancient Near Eastern priestly family, then it makes a lot more sense. 
One is the king, and the other is his brother who's been consecrated from the time of his birth to be the one who interfaces between man and God. He might even have had a temple where he went to to pray and to make these sort of entreaties. So the brother of Jared goes and he cries unto the Lord. This is the story. So those are the things they take with them. They take this prophet and this priestly family and all the other experiences they, that they have. What is lost in the book of Ether as we have it today? Uh, first of all, we don't know who all the authors are. We don't know who the contributors are to these 24 plates. Uh, we know that Ether compiled them. We know that the brother of Jared, who, uh, by the way, the prophet Joseph Smith later had a revelation that the brother of Jared's name was Mahanrai Moriankumar, but it's not mentioned in the Book of Mormon, interestingly enough. They do, the plate, one of the places where they stop and stay is later named Moriankumar. So that's one indication, but it's, it's not connected explicitly with the brother of Jared. In any case, we know for sure that he's one of the contributors, and we know that Ether is one of the contributors. So on either end, we have these bookends, so to speak, both figurative and literal, of uh, the writers of the Book of Ether, but we don't know who the other authors are. We don't know the language. God had confounded the language, so it may or may not be closely related with any other known language family. So it may have contained things like most, most of the time epics come in the form of epic poems. Even though they can be written in prose, they're usually poems. And we don't know if there was poetry in the original. If so, Moroni did not transmit it, or Joseph Smith did not translate uh, Moroni's poetry. Somewhere along the way, if there was poetry in the original, it's been lost, or we have failed to recognize it. Details are lost, timelines are lost, uh, that we don't have, as we do in the Bible, this person lived so long and then gave birth to a son, or uh, not gave birth, begat a son. We don't have that sort of timeline or those counts of years, and a lot of place names are not present. And we have in the book of Ether, we have passing mentions of prophets that come and give warning to the people, but we don't have a lot of records of their prophecies. So those are the things that we're missing in the book of Ether. It's actually a very, very condensed book. It's, it's meant to give us a quick revision of the story of this people and nothing more. So now we're ready to actually dive in, but before I began talking about the content of the book of Ether, I wanted to give you that introduction because it does so perfectly fit into all of the patterns that you would expect it to fit into, giving its purported origin of a people that came from the Tower of Babel and the time frame in which that would have occurred, the cultural background in which they would have existed, and the, the events that they underwent in order to get to the new world. The, all of those things being the case, we actually find in the book of Ether all of the things that you would expect. And here in the first chapter of Ether, now we'll begin talking about it, we find another thing that you would expect, which is an extended genealogy. You find what's called a king list, which is uh, just uh, like it sounds, it's one the name of one king after another. You know, it's a little bit reminiscent of many of the records we have in the book of Numbers, in the book of Chronicles, and also in the book of Matthew and in Luke, we have the uh, extended genealogies of Jesus Christ. And so these sorts of things are not without precedent in Scripture. However, something's different about this record in the first chapter of Ether, which is that it's backwards. It starts with Ether, who was the last example, the last living survivor of the Jaredite people, and it goes backwards through his uh, lineage all the way up to Jared. And it shows that, like Moroni, he was a descendant of the found, his people's founder. Now, the fascinating thing about, well, there are two fascinating things about this king list. Number one, uh, first of all, you read through it and, you've, and you just kind of skim through it because you, your eyes start to glaze over after five or six of these kings. You, you start to think, okay, I'm not going to remember all these names. What's the point? And so you skip it a little bit. But if you read later on, so we have uh, some interludes by of stories by... Uh, Moroni, some commentary, etc., some history a little bit, but really we don't get into the kings of the Jaredites until chapter 6. So if you read this king list in chapter 1, then you will find something interesting in chapter 6. Now it starts to go through the, the reign of those kings each uh, in reverse order. Now again, Send your mind back to what you've heard about the transcription and uh, translation process of the Book of Mormon. Uh, Joseph Smith 
by all accounts, and it, there were numerous accounts of him doing this, was dictating the text of the Book of Mormon without any sort of recourse to notes or to even the record of the transcription he'd already given. Now think about what that would take for him to say 30 names in reverse, and then without a break, this this uh, the Book of Ether was dictated only over the course of only a few days. Without any sort of break, he then immediately tells the story of these people in more extended form, and from time to time mentioning one of these names, exactly the same number of names in exactly the reverse order. Now, one of two things has to be true. If Joseph Smith made up this book, then he had to have memorized, well, he either had to have memorized what written beforehand the entire book of ether and painstakingly lined it up to include all of these elements that we've talked about including these two king lists one forward and one backward but then he would have had to memorize it or everybody who described his transcription process is involved in a conspiracy to hide the truth about how the book of mormon came about so that just made the claim that joseph smith wrote or composed the book of mormon a lot less likely, because now we've got to account for a lifelong conspiracy that nobody ever shone a, shone a light on for the rest of their lives. If you think about all the tremendous uh, pressure that was brought to bear on everyone involved in this process, and the fact that many of them left the church or even fought viciously against the prophet Joseph after that, and nevertheless, if the most convincing thing they could have said was, I was involved in a conspiracy to make up the Book of Mormon, but none of them ever said that. And they would have. They would have had every reason to. So this should help us, you know, as we, as we examine the historical context, the modern historical context of the Book of Mormon, and the way in which it came about from the Golden Plates, this should help us to recognize it's not such a simple explanation that Joseph Smith just wrote the Book of Mormon. Now, there are other books that were around the time of Joseph Smith that have sort of a same general idea. They're purported to be the record of an ancient people, even Israelites, etc., and claiming that uh, modern Native Americans were descended from Israelites. It was a common idea. And so it's easy to dismiss the Book of Mormon as just yet one more example of this pattern in which charlatans are claiming an ancient origin for a modern book. However, when we start to recognize these ancient indicators inside the Book of Mormon, then that throws that sort of explanation, that sort of dismissal of the Book of Mormon into doubt. Because who could explain why a conspiracy like that would never have been uncovered? It doesn't make any sense. Who could explain how Joseph Smith, if there was no conspiracy, how did he fool everyone he was dictating to? He would have had to flawlessly memorize a man who couldn't even write very well. He would have had to flawlessly first compose, then edit, and then memorize, and then recite without a mistake this entire book without having anyone get any indication of it, enough to record it in any journals that we know about. So those two things are also very unlikely. As unlikely as the Book of Mormon uh, as an ancient record, as unlikely as, it, as its ancient origins might sound to, to a non-believer, this sort of conspiracy theory or this sort of composition and memorization theory, they're also very, very unlikely. Joseph Smith got an awful lot of things right for somebody who is faking it. And that should help our faith as we pray about and ponder about and read about the prophets and the people in the Book of Mormon. That's chapter one. Uh, so... Why did Nimrod, in chapter 1 at the end, we, we uh, read about the fact that they go into the Valley of Nimrod. And that brings up this, this leader of the ancient Babylonian people, or the people of the Tower of Babel, as they weren't yet known as Babylonians. But why did he initiate the building of this tower? He wanted to escape the justice of God. He wanted to be able to ignore God, as I mentioned before. Well, what is distinctive about Jared and his brother? Jared says to his brother, look, we believe in God. We believe in this being that we call Yahweh. Or maybe they didn't have that name for him yet. But we have received these instructions from our fathers of old. We have these scriptures. We have an account of the creation from Adam on down. And we know that God 
doesn't interact with us this way. We don't want to escape his justice. We want to listen to him and therefore cry unto the Lord and ask him that he won't confound our language. And and then uh, cry unto the Lord again. Ask him that he will spare our friends from this horrible fate as well. Cry unto the Lord. Ask him whither we should go. So three times uh, the brother of Jared is given a, an instruction, go cry unto the Lord. Three times he receives a miraculous intervention from God or direction from God. So crying unto the Lord is contrasted right here in chapter 1 with trying to be able to ignore the Lord. This is the story of the first half of the book of Ether is, are you going to cry unto the Lord or are you going to ignore the Lord? And here's what happens when you make either choice. In one case, you are you're confounded in every way. You become you go the way of all the earth, right? You you're left unto your own devices. In the other case, you're led, and God promises at the end of uh, chapter one, God promises the brother of Jared that I'm going to lead you now into a promised land, and I'm going to make you the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And why am I going to do that? Because you have cried unto me for such a long time. So the blessings of prayer, the blessings of trusting in God and being willing to subject yourselves unto his justice are that not only will you not be confounded, will you not be left unto your own strength, but you'll become part of the greatest nation on the face of the world. You will be the greatest people there is because you trusted in me. So this contrast that started out small just got huge. Uh, in chapter 2, the Jaredites, as, they, as we know them today, they're given inspiration to go on a further migration. God appears to the brother of Jared in a cloud. And this cloud, this uh, means of God appearing to his people, is later repeated in the story of the Exodus. He goes before them in the cloud and at night in a pillar of fire. And the cloud filled the temple when it was dedicated, both in the tabernacle and in the temple of Solomon. It was a means of recognizing the presence of God or the Shekinah as it later came to be known, an extra biblical word that so accurately describes what it must have felt like, this abiding presence of God, God dwelling in his temple. So this Shekinah is following them, is guiding, either following them or going before them. Eventually, they reach the shores of the sea being guided by the cloud. And then they have an interesting experience because they live there for four years. They call this place Moriankamer. And for four years, nothing much happens, so we skip over it. And then all of a sudden, the brother of Jared is in trouble. Why? Because he spent four years without crying unto the Lord. Now, this is a very clear indication that Moroni is trying to make a point, or, or Ether is trying to make a point. One of the people who inserted themselves into the uh, process of giving us this narrative is making the point that Talking to God is an important thing, and failing to talk to God is something that gets you in a lot of trouble. So God spoke with the brother of Jared about three hours. Now, uh, I can't imagine what those three hours must have felt like. Having God chew you out, basically, for three hours would be, I think, devastating. However, the alternative for the brother of Jared was to continue his behavior of not calling upon God. So which would you rather suffer? Would you rather suffer the consequences at the end of your life of not having called on God, or would you rather have God intervene and as uncomfortable and miserable perhaps as it makes you, would you rather have him tell you, hey, you're not calling on me. This is a big deal. I'm going to spend three hours telling you why it's a big deal. That would be a very difficult conversation, but it would be one that all of us would, I hope, would want to have rather than face the alternative. Now, we have in chapter 2 a phrase that all of you are probably familiar with. They are given the inspiration on how to build boats that are going to get across the water. And the boats are described as being tight like unto a dish. And this is a wonderful phrase. It's repeated four times, I think at least four. And the boats or the ships of the Jaredites are therefore not like uh, the boat of Nephi, or at least what we understand of the boat of Nephi. They're, they're more like submarines. They're called barges, but they're more like submersible craft. And God says, make a hole in the top and make a hole in the bottom. And, and then 
when the weather's clear, you'll be able to open those holes up and let in new air. And obviously the problem is, the brother of Jared sees it right away, we're going to be sealed away there in the dark. And we don't know how to breathe, we don't know how to see anything, and we're going to die. And God says, okay, I will help you. Now here's something interesting. So here's the brother of Jared again. He's crying unto the Lord. He's saying, we're one across the deep now. And God says, okay, I will help you. What is it that you want? That's the end of the book of, or I'm sorry, the second chapter, the book of Ether. And I think it's interesting, the order. A lot of times we study these these chapters we don't recognize. We All we see is that the book, the brother of Jared says, you know what, I'm going to come up with my own idea as to how you want to help me, Lord. I'm going to be proactive, and I'm going to go find a way that you can help me. What we don't realize is the order in which this happened is God first promised him that he would help him, and then I'm going to get you out of this. And then he said, how do you want me to get you out of it? So again, why did God have this predisposition to help the brother of Jared? It was because he was constantly crying unto the Lord. This is being reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. Then he does say, "How? what would you that I should do to help you have light and air in these barges as you cross the ocean? In other words, he's asking the brother of Jared to be a co-creator with him in, in sculpting and in designing and in shaping his future. I want you to choose. How do you want me to get you out of it? Not because I can't come up with something, but because it helps you so much to guide this process. And you have more buy-in. When you choose the, the way in which you, I'm going to save you, then you believe in me more, then you fight for it more, and then you feel more pride in the eventual outcome, You've and more righteous pride or more just pride, when it actually all turns out right because you were involved in creating the process. And that is the way that God involves us and that's the way he brings us closer to his level is to enlist us as co-creators in our own salvation and in our own experience. Uh, This process began before we ever came to earth. We were co-creators of our earthly experience. I I know that this has to be the case, right? I don't have any visions of what happened to me before this life. But I know that uh, from my patriarchal blessing, I know from uh, the, the blessings of many that I've discovered, I know from many, many conference talks, we were all enlisted as co-creators for our earthly experience. And therefore, we have, you know, the fact that we've forgotten this, Neil A. Maxwell said, you don't wake up the patient during surgery and then ask them again for their permission to continue this life-saving remedy, you leave the anesthetic in until the surgery is done. And that's that his, his metaphor was, you know, we are now asleep with the veil. We have the sleep of memory. But we were co-creators in our path. We don't need to be waked, uh, awakened to give permission yet again for a path we've already chosen. We created, we helped with the Lord to create the path our lives would take. And the Lord continues to ask us to do that even though we are now inside the veil. Speaking of the veil, the brother of Jared has an interesting experience. The solution he comes up with is to molten 16 stones. They end up looking clear like glass. And he says, God touched them, and then we can use them for light. Uh, And great, so God does that. And because the brother of Jared believes so much, by this time he's been crying unto the Lord so powerfully and so consistently and with so much faith, that he sees God, and it says that he could not be kept uh, from without the veil because of his great faith. So God, for whatever reason, God doesn't want, doesn't desire to keep us outside of the veil, right? God wants to let us through it. And so the brother of Jared gave God all of the, I don't know the right word to use, all the permission he needed, all of the excuses he needed he gave, God doesn't want to let us inside the veil because it will hurt us, because it will take away our ability to grow in faith. But the brother of Jared reached the point where he couldn't grow anymore in faith. He had a perfect knowledge. He knew, he believed it so much that he finally knew it. And at that point, there was no point in God not showing him everything. And so he did. God showed him first his spiritual body and said, this is the form that I will take upon myself. And secondly, he said, have a look at this world, that, uh, and you can see to the ends thereof, both in space and in time, 
the brother of Jared had this vision. So that's the, the marvelous vision that I've already alluded to that occurs in chapter 3. Uh, an interesting verse here, Jesus Christ, uh, as he identifies himself as Jesus Christ, he said, and God, the Lord, and Jesus are all used interchangeably in this chapter. I find that very interesting. Uh, but one interesting verse is verse 14. He says, to all those who believe, I will give power to become my sons and my daughters. Uh, that's an idea we talked about last week that is discussed many times in the scriptures. So God spiritually begets us when we begin to believe in him, when we make the decision to believe in him, then we become his children. And it's in a way that's more important than flesh, as is described in John chapter 1. To those who believed, he gave the power to, to be children under him. Not in the way that the Jews are children of Abraham, not in the fleshly way, but in a spiritual way, in a more powerful way, in a more significant way that John describes in that chapter. So if you want to know about why it's important, what's the big deal about becoming the son and daughter of Christ, uh, go read that in John chapter 1. Now, uh, also, Jesus tells Mahanrai Moriankamer, I'm going to give you this Urim and Thummim. I'm going to give you these two stones that will be an interpreter. He doesn't use the word Urim and Thummim. Um, And this is interesting because later the... Jaredites are described as being large in stature, extremely large. They're a huge people, a mighty, mighty people, mighty warriors. And the, the best description we have, physical description of this Urim and Thummim, this is the Urim and Thummim, by the way, that was given to Joseph Smith inside the same box that held the golden plates. The best physical description of these interpreters was given by the prophet's mother, Lucy Mack Smith. And we have uh, some reason to interpret her description as they were almost like adjustable spectacles, but they had a rod on one side that was could be attached to a breastplate. So there was part of the Urim and Thummim you would wear, and then you'd have a, uh, in order so that you'd have your hands free, you were able to position this rod so that it would hold these two stones in front of your eyes and you could look through them. However, they were also too large. So even if they were adjusted correctly, they would be too far apart for the prophet's eyes. So that was another interesting aspect of her description because the Jaredites were so large and that made the Urim and Thummim a little bit unwieldy for the prophet. Now that's just a side note, but that takes us into chapter four. After having this amazing vision uh, at the top of a mountain, the brother of Jared, as I mentioned before, he comes down from the mountain and he immediately writes down what he's seen. But God tells him that this is not to come forth among the people who should read it until I show myself in the flesh. And therefore, we know from that that Mosiah, after translating this record, would not have shared everything. He would not have shared the fact that Christ said, this is the body I'm going to take upon myself. All of these, this information or some of this information that the brother of Jared is getting that we read in chapter 3 is not had among the Nephites until the events of uh, 3rd Nephi. And, and this vision that he has, this expansive vision, is also not reported among all of the people. Now, the people of 3rd Nephi and 4th Nephi, they got it. Moroni got it. But we don't get it. How much was it? How much material is there? Well, obviously, he couldn't have written everything. He saw unto the ends of the earth. He could not have described every person who would live in every place there was. Uh, But what he did describe, Joseph Smith later told us that it was sealed up. It was the sealed portion of the plates. The golden plates could not all be read and could not even be read all by Joseph Smith. Uh, A huge part of it, perhaps as much as half or even two-thirds, were described by the witnesses to the golden plates, both the three and the eight, as being a half or two-thirds of the total. Now, that total is even bigger than what we have, because remember, um, 116 manuscript pages are, are commonly described as having been lost. But as we discussed early this year, early last year in the uh, early lessons of the Book of Mormon, the number was probably closer to over 330 pages, maybe as many as 350 pages, manuscript pages of the Book of Mormon were lost. So something like 40% larger book what is what it would have been had Joseph Smith not given those pages into the hands of Martin Harris. Now, 
Imagine a book that's 40% larger than the Book of Mormon being only one-third of the original total, and you will have some indication of how long this revelation was and his writings were of the brother of Jared at this time. Thinking about that, you realize the Book of Mormon could just as easily and just as justifiably be called the, the Book of Ether, the Book of Moroni, or the book of, or even the book of Mor- Mahanrai Moriankamer, because these uh, prophets are the ones whose writings actually constitute the bulk of what we would have had had we had the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, which hopefully, presumably, one day we will. Uh, Jesus describes to the brother of Jared at this time. He says, "When, or, I'm sorry, he st- describes to Moroni. He says, when the Gentiles are as righteous, they show as much faith." as the brother of Jared, then they'll have access to all of his revelations and I'll show them everything. And so we've got some work to do if we want to receive these revelations, if we ever want to see the, the, the promise is in the ninth article of faith that we believe that God will yet reveal many great important truths pertaining to the kingdom of God. And these, the contents of these sealed portion of the plates is among those great important things. In chapter 5, uh, oh, finally, in chapter 4, uh, Moroni says, the, we'll all know that the revelation of John, the, the visions of John, uh, which is John the Revelator, his disciple in the old world, we'll all know the truth of that. We'll know the explanation of it because the writings of the brother of Jared were inclusive of all of the real events for which the revelation of John is only the symbolic uh, reconstruction, the symbolic recounting of those events. We'll actually have the interpretation of all of the book of Revelation. We'll know that it's true. Uh, it's a powerful testimony of the truth of the Bible. One example of how that, as Moroni said, you will read that record, in other words, the Bible, in order to know the truth of this, the Book of Mormon, and you will read this to know the truth of that, the Bible. So here's one example of how they reinforce each other. In chapter 5, Moroni talks about how there will be three witnesses to these plates. And um, again, as I said, he gives an indication that he's writing all of this from memory. Now, that would be notable. It would be exceptional enough, extraordinary enough. But then we realize that what we're reading here in the Book of Ether that we have today is a tiny percentage of what he would have actually had to write down if he were including the entire sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. It would have been larger than the Book of Mormon by twice as long as what we have today, or more. Now, was he writing the words from memory? What he says is, I've written the words that were commanded me according to my memory. So was it the words that were in his memory, or was it what he was commanded to write that was in his memory? And he he remembered what he'd been commanded, and then he went and found the words on the plates. So there's a little bit of ambiguity there. It leaves some room for interpretation. So it may be that he did memorize everything that we've been talking about. It may be that uh, he, he just memorized the instructions to go and uh, abridge all of those things. Uh, in any case, that's chapter five. Now I'm gonna briefly, I'm gonna go into part of chapter six because it ties in with what we've been talking about. Now we have the account of their journey across the sea. They get into these boats. And I just wanna mention uh, a few more examples of crying unto the Lord. They cried unto the Lord when their boats were pushed under the water. And then, therefore, you know, as it implies, because they're crying unto the Lord, they're brought again to the surface. The wind never ceased to blow the whole time they're on the water and all day and all night. They never stopped thanking God. And then when they arrived in the promised land, they got out and on the shores of the sea, they thanked God for his tender mercies. Now, we have the beginning of the story and at the end of the story, twice, The Jaredites are rescued, once from confounding at the time of the Tower of Babel, and the second time uh, as as they exit their boats and they're saved from certain death at sea, and they are also given a fantastic new promised land and an identity as a people. And both events are closely connected with their willingness to cry unto the Lord. And in the middle, there's this issue, there's this episode of chastisement, And there's also, obviously, the events around the Tower of Babel. So there are the people who want to ignore the Lord, and they're confounded in two instances, and they're bookended by people 
who are listening and crying unto the Lord and asking him, petitioning him, and humbling themselves before him are given the greatest of blessings that people can have. So do we want to live without God in the world? Or do we want to cry unto the Lord and arrive in the promised land? This is a spiritual journey, right? This is meant to be symbolic. It's obviously a historical event. It's a scriptural historical event. We're meant to believe that this really happened. It's not presented as fiction. However, it's also meant to be symbolic for us. We're meant to apply it to our lives and say, if I live without God in the world, if I don't cry unto the Lord, then I can expect to receive this particular set of rewards. And if I do cry unto the Lord, then there's no limit in what God will do for me. It's very similar to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we uh, talked about the difference between this Hebrew, in this Hebrew phrase, the uh, Hadam Goel, which is the uh, either could be called, translated as a blood avenger or a kinsman redeemer, right? If we want to live without God in the world, then we have to avenge our own wrongs and we become a blood avenger, as it would describe in the Old Testament. But if we're willing to allow Christ into our lives and forgive rather than swear vengeance, then we have access to him as our kinsman redeemer. And he can come and fight our battles for us. Uh, it's, it's a great contrast that we find over and over again in the scriptures and, f- and in few places more effective than here in the first half of the book of Ether. So the message, if, if Ether 1 uh, through chapter 1 through 6 and a half can be said to have just one message, is that God is pleased when we cry unto him. And in fact, there is untold power in that act. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.